So welcome everybody. It's good to, to, to have everybody here. In case you don't know me, my name is Paul Nichols and I've got the privilege of uh, pastoring the church. So we are in the middle of discussing kind of a um, series of messages, if I can say it that way, on the values, the core values of Border City Church. So Border City Church is what we call a church plant, which is to say that uh, this is a newly started uh, local church community, and uh, we're just kind of driving some stakes in the ground uh, as we start this thing together to affirm and speak into our atmosphere, our collective community that's being formed here of the values of, of how it is that we're maneuvering into our future together. Uh, we don't just kind of meander and stumble our way, kind of. I mean, we kind of stumble our way into God's purpose and destiny, because, uh, you know, by God's grace, but there are foundations that we walk upon, and uh, so we're speaking into some of those things, and I'm just going to read a statement um, that's in and of itself, I feel, is kind of driving in this, a stake in the ground to define who it is that we are, Border City Church, and how many of you know, uh, uh, very much in line with what Jason was just saying, this isn't about Border City Church, right? We didn't come here to worship Border City Church, right? Neither did we come here to worship any person or anything like that. Uh, we are followers. Let me just read it, actually. We are a local community of Jesus followers. So who do you hear as the, the, uh, the focal point in that statement? We are a local community of Jesus followers, a family on mission to see healing and rebuilding in the people of Detroit and beyond our borders. That's who we are. Local community of Jesus followers, family on mission to see healing and rebuilding in the people of Detroit and beyond our borders. I like that. So what we're going to be talking about today, and we've, we've uh, already gone into some of these kind of core values. We've, we talked about the centrality of Christ, that Jesus is everything. Uh, you take that out and the whole everything falls down. That is our pursuit. In fact, we believe, as I just read to you, that we're called to be used by God to be involved in rebuilding lives that perhaps have been broken to some degree in this city. But do you know that that's not our pursuit? That in and of itself isn't our pursuit. Jesus is our, is our pursuit. That's what he's doing. And as we pursue him, we just kind of jump onto the, the train that he's, that, he's, uh, that he's leading. That's a weird way of saying it, but you know what I mean. Today, we are going to be talking about authenticity. And um, so at, at this church, what, again, driving a stake in the ground, what we want to do, we want to live in authentic relationship with God and with each other and the world around us. We want to live in authentic relationship with God and with each other and the world around us. So when I became a Christian at the age of 17, in other words, I placed my faith in Jesus around the age of 17, I, and I later, about a year later, got involved with my first local church. And... Um, and it was kind of like, a really, I got involved with a campus ministry in college that was an outreach of a church. So that was my first real church experience. And can I suggest to us that I had some strange experiences in church? Because I had never been a part of this world. And, uh, and I started to encounter some things that perhaps wouldn't be labeled as authentic. So I'll just share a couple. And I, and I don't mean to... to offend or anything like that. I'm just being real and, and, and saying some things. So one would be a habit of some to have to tie on praise God or hallelujah to everything that was said. 
So, for example, man, I, I got a great deal on some jeans today. Oh, well, praise God. Hallelujah. Now, if that's sincere, that's fine, honestly. Like, if that's sincere, but if that's just rote, like, the way we talk in church, that's actually strange. Is that okay? Or uh, I found, I found <laughs> praise God. <laughs> or I found that, uh, that some people needed to find a spiritual lesson in anything we were talking about. So, I mean, I just want to talk about how the Braves won the World Series. I don't need to know how that ties into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so, so that's, you know, an, another thing. And, and then another thing I think is, is the, we like to address each other with, with the we. we. Some like to address one another with titles. So I found at this age that for the first time in my life, apparently I am not just Paul, but I'm Brother Paul. <laughs> And then we've got like bishop and apostolic bishop, prophetic pastor, river flow thing or whatever. And we've got titles and these, these things. And, and then uh, another thing would be behavior that is significantly changes from the way we act inside a church meeting. And then we happen to go to Fridays after church and we see that person there. And it's not as though they're like, uh, you know, just like some horrible person, but like profoundly different. Like this whole you know, smile in church and this whole thing that we're putting on and, oh, right, Jesus, ah. And then you go to this outside of the church and it becomes like a very different, almost completely different person. And then also we've got people with a huge capacity to publicly feign, I guess, spirituality and then privately have a capacity to be pursuing a very opposite reality. Uh, that's not authentic, Right? It's not that we're perfect or ever will be perfect, but we don't need to be fake. Amen. Amen. Zerl, thank you, buddy. And then, uh, you know, claiming faith in Christ, but closing ourselves, closing our lives, closing our hearts to loving certain people. And that's, that's prevalent, these things. I met a guy, uh, one of the reasons that I first got involved in church was I met this guy, his name was Don Williams, and he was... He was the campus pastor, and, and he was just like normal, you know, just real salt of the earth, real guy, genuinely interested in me, genuinely helping, interested in helping me along my way in my desire to walk with Jesus. And, uh, and around him was formed this community of people who just wanted him and wanted real community. And uh, I, I think that that says a lot about what we're actually called to be, and what Jesus actually started, and what we want to be, is authentic. So uh, let me say some opposites, some opposites to authenticity in church. Is that okay? Opposites, and then, and then maybe some descriptors of what it would be, look like to be authentic in a church context. Opposites would be this. Number one, doing spiritual things to be seen by people. Another would be speaking and behaving like a church subculture, if you understand what I mean by that. It's like we pick up these ways of talking and ways of behaving that are actually subculture. Uh, another would be telling others to do what you don't do yourself. That's not authentic. Another would be maintaining a spiritual public image, but not letting anyone in to see or help the real you. Not authentic. Another would be doing works of service to prove yourself or to achieve something without simply first giving your heart to God. Authenticity would be 
Things like this. Being settled and having nothing to prove. Loving and caring for people rather than getting them to see how good you are. Uh, can I say also another authentic would be having the real goods to actually help people. Uh, that is authentic, is having the goods to actually help people rather than just imposing upon other people our convictions and that kind of thing. Actually being able to really help. Another would be letting people into your world and receiving from others. And then another would be simply being real. So what I want to talk about is in the same way that we talked about community a few weeks ago, and I, and I made this comment that community could be like a buzzword in church right now, where it's like the cool thing to do. We don't want to just be about meetings and that kind of thing. We want to be about community, and that's like a cool thing. But actually, there are very rich, deep theological convictions rooted in what God has said in his word that community is actually the reality of what heaven is about, and therefore, not because it's the popular thing to do in church in these days, therefore, we want to walk in community because of a conviction of who Jesus is and what he's like and what he's building and what the kingdom of God is like. The same would be true for authenticity. I know that people are sick of church and church as usual, so we're not trying to like be authentic in order to counter what people are fed up with so that we can be cool with people. We want to be authentic because there are deep spiritual theological realities of God's kingdom, who Jesus is and what he's like. He is authentic, and for that purpose, we want to live in the values of Jesus. And so having said that, if you, could, if you have some kind of a form of the Bible, you can look with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to go into kind of the, orienta- the, the foundation of authenticity, walking in the light, what, what this thing really is all about in our, in our lives. And, and, and the first thing that we want to say is this, is that our purpose, our purpose as people, your purpose, my calling, your calling, our calling is actually built on the foundation of authenticity. Now, you may not know what I mean by that or how I'm getting there. You'll, you'll know in just a few minutes. Our purpose is actually built on the foundation of authenticity. So Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth— Get back to your—sorry. Okay. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Verse 4, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So, this story of creation, which all of us are very familiar with, is like a building project. So this guy that was just speaking, uh, Jason, a few minutes ago, in case you don't know, he's a contractor. So he's involved in building. He knows the story. He knows what it looks like. So in a building project, in fact, anybody want to tell me, what is the first thing that you do? Foundation. Exactly. You clear the land. You make it, you make it uh, level so that it's prepared for a pouring of concrete, and you put the, the um, you can tell that I'm not a contractor, and uh, <laughs> so you pour the footers or something. Anyway, foundation. Thank you, Zero. So foundation is the, is the, is the first part of a building kind of project. What you're seeing in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates the heavens and the earth 
is not a random, he just kind of does one thing one day and one thing another. It is a systematic God who is a master planner and a master builder saw the end from the beginning and he knew what he needed to do to be able to get to the glorious ending, the glorious ending being his sons and his daughters being placed into this creation that he made and he knew what needed to happen first, what happened to be built on that and that and after that and after that. The first thing was this thing of light. So in the same way that it's, a, it's like a creation, I've also referenced this in times past, there's, there's also the reality of it's kind of like when Minda and I made a baby room for our son Peter. And uh, we converted our, the extra bedroom into a baby room, and we systematically prepared it for the day that Peter was born so that when we took him home from the hospital, baby Peter, he had a room with the African animal, stuffed animals, and it was painted for a baby, and it had the crib, and it had the changing table, and all that kind of, kind of stuff. We systematically planned during those nine months to have it all done so that it would be ready for Peter. In the same way, God the Father did this for the apex of his creation, mankind, but the foundation of it that came first was light. It was light. Now, just think with me for a moment the significance of that. What is light, actually? I would say this. Light is seeing and being seen. So, in other words, the foundation of this place that he made with humanity in mind, it began with light. In other words, before we can do anything else in preparing mankind to be who they are called to be, we first need light. Seeing, the ability to see, and being seen. Um, knowing and being known. Not hiding truth and realness. That's what light really is all about. Would you agree? And so... And sorry, I'm having some technical errors up here. And so if you'll look with me, Genesis chapter 3, two, two, uh, two chapters further on, the, the fall of mankind, the, where, where man separated from God, where man walked and lost this intimacy, this place that he had with God, walking in light, living in this place of light with him. You know the story, he, man was tempted to eat of the fruit of the tree that he, that he shouldn't, he, he did, and there was something bad that happened. But let's, let's listen to what was the result of that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together and made girdles for themselves. So, it says that the eyes of them were opened. And if you read further, or excuse me, if you read previously, it's God says to them, don't eat of the fruit of that tree, for in that day you will surely die. Let me ask you this question. When, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, their eyes were opened, were their eyes previously closed? Were they just kind of walking around creation like this? When they ate of the fruit of that tree, did they physically die? And yet God said that their eyes would be opened, and their, uh, their eyes were opened according to the scripture, and that surely in that day you would die. It wasn't a physical death, neither was it their physical eyes 
being open, their physical eyes were already, already were open. They were already seeing. They were already walking around. This is a spiritual reality that happened in the eating of the, of the fruit of that tree. There was a spiritual death that happened. Now, you may remember in John chapter 17, Jesus defines eternal life. The opposite of death is this. This is eternal life that you would know me or know God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's the idea. That's what spiritual life actually is, knowing relationship. When they partook of that fruit, their, their relationship was cut off. That thing of light and beholding him and seeing, that was cut off. They, they didn't see him. They didn't know him in the way that they did, in the caliber and quality of relationship that they previously had been enjoying. And also... Their eyes were opened to see both good and evil. They ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, whereas before their focal point had been God, who was neither just good or evil. He was life. He was perfection. He was love, right? That was, that was what they were beholding and walking in. And when they ate of the fruit of the tree, it went, the focal point went off of God, and they could not perceive him anymore, and didn't have a spiritual connection with him anymore, and they became aware of good and evil, and that came into their heart. What is the result of that? They became self-centered and self-conscious. If you look with me, Genesis, uh, actually I just read this, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made girdles for themselves. And I want to suggest to us that in the, the reality of our being who we are outside of Jesus is a, is a tendency of wanting to live in a place of hiding. Now that just simply carries over into church. So even though we may have received Jesus and encountered him, there is still this reality of a desire or a, or a tendency to try to live in a place of hiding. And that is the thing that Jesus is actually redeeming us out of. And as we walk in God's purpose for us, it's coming out of hiding from him and through that coming out of hiding with one another. Now, I know no one in here has ever like, tried to live with walls up or anything like that. We're, I'm just talking about those people out there that we need to reach. So this is, this is a big, big thing. This thing of inauthenticity in, in church or just in humanity is, that's, this is where it started. This is where it begins. It's at the core, even, of the problem of humankind. It's at the core, even, of the solution that God has given us in Jesus, is coming into the light. And so if you, if you, if you look, it says they sewed fig leaves together and they made girdles for themselves— they became aware of their own nakedness, self-conscious, self-aware. If you look, uh, continue on, Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the voice of Jehovah God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Jehovah God. Note that. That was the result of the fall. That was the result of their condition of being self-conscious and self-aware is that they wanted to hide themselves. It's the opposite of doing that, that is the key to us walking in our calling and purpose of being authentic worshipers of Jesus. Verse 9, And Jehovah God, or the Lord God, called to Adam and said, Where are you? What's God's focal point? What's his concern? Himself? Adam, exactly. 
where are you? Listen to Adam's response. And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I am naked, and I hid myself. What's Adam's, what's Adam's focus? On himself. Exactly. So the condition that Adam confesses here is that he's afraid. Fear, the result of self-conscious, self-awareness, having our focus taken off of the Lord, no longer living in that undisconnected, if I can say that, <laughs> undisconnected love and intimacy with God, that the result of coming out of that place is fear. I want to suggest to us that if you fear, it's not to say you are a bad person. Sure, don't you worship God? You should know that you don't fear. But I, I, we're not saying that. But on the other hand, I want to say if we are living in fear, that that is the result of the disconnect that happened at the beginning. Therefore, we can live in a place that doesn't have fear, where fear doesn't drive us. Why am I saying that? Because at the root of our inauthenticity is fear. And we want to be a people who do not live in fear in order to be who God has called us to be. Not we resist fear. Look how good, strong of faith Christians we are. We don't have fear. No, every single person in this room is going to encounter fear for the rest of your lives until Jesus comes. But we don't have to live in it. It does not have to rule over us. Jesus has made a way for us to be free from that. So, so, jeez. Uh, I'm, try, I'm really trying not to, like, say anything about this iPad, but oh my gosh, it is, it is, you're not supposed to, like, mention the thing that's going wrong as you're speaking publicly, but wow, this is, this is uh, malfunctioning. Anyways, so fear drives us to be something that we're not. I want you to catch that. When we're not authentic, it is fear driving us to, to be something that we're not. God's love liberates us to be real with him, what, it, what is it when you're not real or you put up walls? It's trust, ultimately. That's, it simply boils down to that. And trust is rooted in not knowing the other parties, um, their, uh, their character and their intentions. And when we come into the revelation of God's love for us, it liberates us to be real with him. And as we find the comfort of being real with God and receiving love, it liberates us to not have walls with one another. Now, I'm not suggesting that every single person in here confess every deep, dark, and evil secret of their lives to every other person in the room. That's not what we're saying, that we're, we walk in the light. So let me tell you what we did this weekend. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if there are walls of our hearts to where people can't really see us, but, you know, praise God, hallelujah, and bishop, pastor, let me suggest that maybe that's not the idea of what Jesus had in mind when he thought of a victorious church. <laughs> so, our calling is to rebuild lives with authentic building material. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, if we're going to reach people, we have to have something real to give them. In order to have something real to give them, not church services, not hot dogs, something real that can impact their lives, we have to have something real that has impacted our lives. For us to have something real and authentic that has impacted our lives, we receive and come out of hiding knowing the character and intentions of this God who loves us. So I love that. So the biggest enemy, we're just going to read through a couple scriptures 
or, or, or through a passage of scripture, Matthew 23. There's an expression in South Africa where my wife and I have, and my family have lived for the past eight years before moving here. Uh, uh, an expression that uh, when, you, when you hit somebody hard, you snot clop them. You can even say that, snot clop. And so Jesus pretty much here in Matthew 23, he's snot clopping the Pharisees. I mean, he's like speaking rather directly. And I want to say that what we read about in Matthew 23, this portion of scripture we're about to read, is the Pharisees, but they represent something of what I call religion. I think Kurt referred earlier to something sounding religious. And what we mean by that is this, spirituality that is actually operating from behind the fig leaves. Do you know what I mean by that? The fig leaves that Adam and Eve sowed upon them in a place of hiding, and yet we're trying with those fig leaves still on to still do our spiritual thing rather than undoing the error that led to us needing the fig leaves in the, in the first place of staying in that intimate spot of trust in the love of God. That, what I just described, spirituality while still wearing the fig leaves was Jesus' biggest enemy. And I would like for the weight of that to fall on us as a church community, I don't think we want to engage in, in spirituality with fig leaves. It was his biggest enemy. I would even go as far as to say, if you read the apostolic letters, that it continued to be the biggest enemy of the apostles in the early church. It's this fake thing, this inauthentic spirituality of trying to serve God without his, him having our heart. We don't want that. So in Matthew 23, if you'll read with me, verse 1, it says this, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So uh, let's just put this into context as of the beginning here. The teachers of the law, that's speaking of the Old Testament law that God gave to his people as an old covenant way of serving him that was never intended to be the way God ultimately wanted us to serve him. In other words, the law was given as a system of do's and don'ts that we do in our own strength to prove our love for him. Does that make sense? God gave that law for the explicit purpose of us realizing that we'll never be good enough with it. We need something better. We need Jesus to prepare our hearts, or at least the hearts of the Jews, for the real solution, not the law, Jesus the law of life, the law of the Spirit and life. So what Jesus is saying here is the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What he's talking about, you can kind of exchange it with this. He's talking about people who are serving God from a performance-orientated or serving God with the externals rather than allowing God to, to actually have occupancy here in the heart. Making sense? So let's move on from there. This is who he's talking about. Verse 3. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them 
on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So as we're going through this, I'm just going to pause and we're going to drive some stakes in the ground of affirmations of who we are as a church community. What, what are the values that, that are in the kingdom of God, values of the kingdom of God, but specifically things and practices that, we, that I believe that God would have for us here as a local church. So first, based on what we just read, is that we only give to others what we actually have. So actually, as a kind of a rule of thumb for anyone who will ever preach and teach in the context of this local church, I ask that, um, that a person always have tef- testimonies from their life to illustrate what it is they're teaching. Why? It's because if you don't have any testimony to refer to the spiritual principle that you're teaching, it probably would indicate that it hasn't actually impacted your heart. So as a rule of thumb, we, we always say, make sure that you have a story or illustrations to, to say what you're saying so that people can hear from real life experience. And because as a stopgap, it's going to keep people from just preaching this spiritual truth that they may have found in scripture, but it hasn't gone here yet. So, so now that doesn't just apply to the, to the preachers and those called to preach. We as a church community Let's never try to tell somebody something that we haven't found victory in ourselves. So I can remember when I was an early Christian and God began to find his way into dark crevices in my heart and started to show me areas that I was walking in darkness, as we might say, different things or attitudes of the heart or certain things that I was involved in. And as God was leading me and I was kind of coming out of these things, I would find other people engaged in these practices, and you know what I would do in my heart? I would judge them. I would be like, because I knew how much I was struggling in my own own heart to find freedom, and here's this person. I just wanted to, like, tell them, like, you are wrong. Don't you know you shouldn't be looking at that? You shouldn't. And and and, And today, now that I've actually found real freedom and actually seen God bring me to a, something of victory in those areas, when I see somebody stuck in that same ditch, I don't judge them at all. In fact, I feel the opposite, compassion. Because I've been there before. I know the hurt inside of the heart that keeps a person locked in that cage. I know what it feels like, and I know the way out. And that's why Jesus says that you... you you, uh, to, to not judge the mote in, in your brother's eye, but to remove the, the, the beam in your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly how to help your brother. And the whole idea is, is that we still need to be helping people, but you can't help other people until you're free yourself. And so, so drive a stake in the ground. As a church community, we want to be a people who are given to allowing Jesus to free us. To, to go there first, to allow Jesus to impact our own hearts, to lead us into victory, the byproduct of that being that when we do find that victory, as we do, we have it to give away. But until we are, are walking in it, we're just putting some kind of a law and duty and restriction on other people, putting more bondage on them, and uh, doing the opposite of what Jesus actually is about, which is freedom. Let's move on. So, verse 5. Everything that they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. So if you don't, want to know, if you don't know what a phylactery is, 
It was a practice that they had based on a scripture of having the law of God written on your minds, and some interpreted that rather um, uh, strictly or, or literally, and they actually had scriptures written on, I think, like leather garments in a box that was on their forehead, and like the bigger that box is, man, the more spiritual they must be. I mean, look at the size box that they've got the word of God written on their foreheads. Wow, isn't that impressive? And so he's, he's talking about the Pharisees love to have these like big displays of spirituality publicly, but, but, um, but the reality is that it's all for other people to see. I want to say this, drive the stake in the ground. We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to prove. Why do, we, why do I have nothing to prove? Because God loves me. <laughs> and I know that that can sound so... Like, we've heard that a million times, but the reality of that, God loves me. I don't need to, I can't do anything to get him to love me anymore, and I don't need any of you to, like, accept me. (laughs) Sorry, but I don't. And if that's the case, I'm free to not live to try to impress any person in here I'm free because God loves me, and actually I can be impacted by that love to where instead of needing you to see how good I am, I can just love and serve you. That's authenticity. So God has proven his love to us through Jesus. That thing right there. God has proven his love that it is fully unconditional. That it is independent of our performance, our righteousness, anything. He loves us. And so much so that he has given his ultimate thing to give away. The blood of his own son. We cannot do anything to get him to love us anymore. And because of that, we can trust him. God loves us, therefore we can trust him. And as we trust and obey him, we love and serve people. Because as he begins to work in our heart, as we encounter his love for us, we begin to tap into his love for others. That's it. In other words, my friends, it doesn't begin with loving and serving other people so that God can love us. Doesn't Rochelle and and Randall, because you don't know, they do work with people who have have, have been victims of, of... of rape and and but then being shunned by society in the eastern drc it doesn't they're they're not impressing god with all due respect they're not impressing god by going into those very difficult situations and serving god they're doing it because they have encountered god encountered something of his love and that propels them to go it starts with just a heart that trusts and obeys and it doesn't even start there it actually starts with that he started it he did it first We just get a revelation of his love for us, and that begins to impact us to open up our hearts and trust him. I want to be with a group of people who can trust God and follow him. So the end to rebuilding other people's lives. So uh, let's move on. Verse 6. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Does this sound like people you want to be hanging with? But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. (laughs) Brother Paul. Anyways. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. 
The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We have a preference here. It's not a rule. If you call me Pastor Paul, I'm not going to say, why do you call me Pastor Paul? Uh, but we actually prefer, Minda, and when I say we, actually prefer for you to call us Paul and Minda. Part of the reason is because of the scripture that we just read. Part of the reason that we call somebody pastor so-and-so and pastor so-and-so is, is something of, of legitimate honor. And that's a good thing. Because there is something of spiritual leadership. We have spiritual leaders in our lives that we honor. In other words, we honor by way of opening our heart. We lean in to allow them to speak into our lives. And we are far, far the better for it. And we encourage a culture of honor. But you don't need to call us pastor in order to honor. So if you want to call, that's fine. If you want to. It's not bad or anything like that. But we're just kind of saying why that would be the preference. And the other is because sometimes when we start calling people titles in church, sometimes it can create a wall where you are, are on another rung. Uh, you wake up in the morning and you must be wearing white garments as you float down the hallway praying in tongues to go wake up your sons, right? So it, it puts, it, we don't want there to be divisions between us and the common folk. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and there's a thing in church sometimes where leadership can be put in this tidy glass box that when reality hits, not to say that there's some like stuff, you know, like reality that's going to hit, but, but the glass box that we have put leaders in, uh, in the church in times past has done so much damage when the reality of their uh, humanity comes out, that, that glass box is destroyed, and therefore the whole church is destroyed, and some people's faith is destroyed. We want you to hang with us in our house over a meal. We're accessible, and, and we want one another to be accessible. Cool? So we, we don't need rabbi and teacher and instructor. If you, if you want to, you don't need to call me Lord, uh, uh, but <laughs> sensei. <laughs> That's interesting. So, verse 23. We're almost, almost done, I promise you. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So, I once had a friend uh, growing up. His name was Anthony. And he was the youngest of, I think, four brothers. And Kevin, the brother that was the next oldest over him, had this thing when his parents would tell him to not touch Anthony. Because Anthony, being the baby of the family, you know, they would kind of pick on him and that kind of thing. And they would say, Kevin, don't touch uh, Anthony. And so Kevin would take his, his, his index finger and put it right in front of Anthony's eye and say, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Sorry, Tamora. So the idea is they gave, they gave instruction to Anthony, but perhaps he missed the spirit of what they were trying to, trying to communicate. And, uh, and, and this is what Jesus is getting at. They're, they are tithing the tenth of their cumin and their spices and their dill. I mean, it's like down to the very thing. We are, God, we are faithful to do this exact thing. But their life is missing the heart of God of mercy and justice and faithfulness. And the, the, the true issue, and Jesus is saying it's not that you don't need to tithe, but you need to grab a hold of my heart. 
That's what I've called you to do, not just this spiritual performance trying to prove to me and to everybody else how spiritual you are. When we don't connect with God's heart authentically, now, see, this is the root of authenticity in church. It's not just being real with one another. That's just another fig leaf that we're putting on ourselves. Authenticity in our relationships is rooted in authenticity in the private space that I have with God that none of you can ever go into. The private space where only he knows when I'm authentic with God, that is where I can grab a hold of his heart and be real and get the greater weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So it's a call to be authentic with him. And we can be authentic with him. That's not a, a, a law or a duty. It is a privilege because of who he is and what he's like. He's awesome. So woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You clean, listen to this, the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. Are you hearing that? It's not about our external presentation. God looks at and deals with the heart. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. How do we clean the inside of our dish? It's not by trying to do some kind of heart thing, figure out how to get our heart right and our heart clean. It's about allowing God in to the heart. He's the one who cleans up the inside. And then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So a kingdom value that we just want to, again, drive a stake in the ground and, and, and say is that our behavior and our life changes from the inside out from an authentic connection with a God who loves us. He alone is the one who, who leads us into righteous living and into purpose. It's not our fierce tenacity to do the work of God and to be diligently. We need to be faithful to him, but it, it is rooted in connection with God, knowing he loves us. Real heart connection with God is the only thing that enables us to live like God. And finally, let's look at this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves for, of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. So can I suggest, how many of you ever heard of this book, called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Like, you know, if you're a Bible-believing Christian in America in the 21st century, you know Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Uh, so there's, what, there's physical touch, there's, there's uh, words of affirmation, there's uh, quality time, there's acts of service. I want to take that one away, but it's there. And then there's gifts. I'm not an acts of service. My wife is an acts of service person. Unfortunately, she married somebody who's not. But anyways, I'm becoming, I'm, I'm becoming better at that. So actually, I think Jesus has a love language as well. Uh, but it's none of the five. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And actual obedience to Jesus is the love language. 
So we as Christians are awesome at like professing our love. For, I mean, we love you. We, we love you, Jesus. And we, we, you are awesome, you're, you know, and that whole thing. But the reality is our love for Jesus is simply like love language, how he receives love, obedience to his commandments. Obedience to his commandments is based on a revelation of his love first for us, right? It's not like Jesus just wants you to obey. He wants you to trust, knowing his love, but it's materialized in doing. These guys that we just read about are saying, if we had lived in the time when they were persecuting Jeremiah and the other prophets, we would have never done that. And yet, in their very own day, God was manifesting to them in their generation, and they were not receiving him. And I, I fear for every single generation, ourselves included, God is doing something in this generation, and many are hardening their heart to that, but dude, they're doing church like there's no tomorrow. Obedience is really the, the reality of this thing. That's the proof of authenticity with God. It's, again, it's not a duty, it's not a law, it's not a, it's not a burden. It is the fruit of a heart that trusts him. And so listen to this, 1 John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. What's the foundation of our purpose? Light. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. Our hero Jesus lived without walls between himself and God. I mean, excuse me, between himself and God and without walls between himself and people. We will be authentic so that we can be a local community of Jesus followers, a family on mission to see healing and rebuilding in the people of Detroit and beyond our borders. I know, I know a lot of us love the idea of rebuilding lives, but let's not be so prideful as to think we can go out there and blunder our way forward and uh, blunder our way forward. That's good wording. I like that go and, and, and take on Detroit and the people around us without allowing God to do that with us first. And as that happens, we've got the authentic real goods of having him transform our life as an authentic reality of a heart connection with a God who created us. And as that happens, we're able to go and actually really impact people and not just give them what they, as humans, already already have. So, Yes, ma'am? You want to add on a thought? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yes. I just want to add on a thought that I think is so important that it's not, and I know you are saying this, Paul, but I don't want it to be misunderstood. It is not that we become perfect and changed by God, and once that's all done, then we go. It's as we receive that we give away. As my heart is healed in that particular area, then I have that particular thing to give away. I might still be really messed up in other areas, but that area that God has touched and helped, I can then give away to help others. So I think it's so important that we, we don't sit and wait and say, I'm not ready. It's that as we receive, we go. We receive, we go. We receive, we go. We walk authentically with God, and then authentically we give it away to others. Yeah. I'm just going to pray. But as we do, I just want to affirm us in this, that 
being authentic, and maybe this is redundant and maybe we've already said this, but just to make absolutely sure, we are not talking about how we need to respond. This is not so much about how we need to respond to him and what we need to go do. This is actually about Jesus has already made the way through what he's done on the cross and in the resurrection that the grace to do everything in the will of God is already available. So we're not putting a burden of this is how you as a good Christian need to respond. It's actually our response is to just with the eyes of our heart look to him and receive the grace to be authentic with him and and allow that to change us into how we relate to others. Is that cool? So I'm going to pray. And uh, you can receive this with me or you can pray this with me. You can agree with this prayer. But I would like to pray for us as a church community for that reality. So Lord, we, we thank you for what you have done. It's not what we need to do. Uh, it's what you have already done. And Lord, we do want to say thank you for already having done it for us. We re- really want to say thank you for that. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you have paid the penalty uh, for every sin, every error that we ever have committed or ever will commit. You have already taken that punishment upon yourself, and we want to thank you for that. And we want to thank you that you also rose from the grave with victory over every single thing that we as humans led into this world. You have overcome all of it, and you have ascended into the highest place, and you have authority, and we want to just look to you and recognize your ability to lead us into everything you've called us to do. Lord, we pray, we want to respond to you by authentically presenting our hearts to you. Lord, let the light that you spoke into being, the true light, let it flood the hearts of the people of this church. We want to walk in that light. We do not want to, we want to come out of hiding every darkened area of our hearts where we have tried to hide from you, Jesus, we, we want to say no. Come and, 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 and see us as we are. Come into that place. Shine your light. We, 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 we want to be seen by you and we also want to see you as you really are. We receive you. Our King, our Savior, the one who is more than able to lead us out of every dark thing that is in our hearts. We receive you, King Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would make of us an authentic people with you, but, but as we are with you, that you would make us an authentic people as you are authentic. That your authenticity could be seen by the, firstly by the people of this city. Father, we want to pray that there would be building material, the goods, supply that, 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 that other people need. Lord, we want to receive that supply into our own lives first. Change us, transform us so that we could have more to give away. In Jesus' name, amen.